Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. In this episode, Connecticut Explored's Elizabeth Norman and Jennifer LaRue explore stories from the fall 2016 issue about the history of crime and punishment in Connecticut. Stay tuned for What's It All About? The Law and Order Edition. This is Elizabeth Norman, publisher of Connecticut Explored, with Jennifer LaRue, editor of Connecticut Explored. Hi, everyone. Each quarter, we like to give our listeners some insight, the backstory, if you will, on the new issue of the magazine, in this case, Fall 2016's Crime and Punishment Issue. And we're guessing by virtue of listening to this podcast that our Grading the Nutmeggers are familiar with one of the most successful podcasts, Serial, which tapped into our fascination with true crime stories. No shortage of true crime stories in Connecticut. But that wasn't the only reason for the issue. As a society, we're perpetually trying to figure out how to build a better prison or eliminate the need for prisons. That's what intrigued us about the issue's story on the Wethersfield State Prison, the subject of a special exhibition at Wethersfield Historical Society. Finding the rest of the stories for this issue was, as happens so often with Connecticut Explored, a case of truth is stranger than fiction, or as I like to say, you can't make this stuff up. Mm. One of my favorite things about the issue was pure serendipity, the number of comic book or graphic novel style illustrations, including our cover image. I don't think we could have planned that either. But not to be too glib about it, we're talking history, so we're talking about real lives of real people. And in our first segment, Elizabeth talked with Jonna Kaplan, the author of the story, The Mysterious Case of Gershom Marks. Welcome, Jonna. Thank you for having me. Jonna, you brought us a very sad and poignant story of Gershom Marks, which we want to hear more about. But first, uh, tell our listeners about yourself. I am a freelance writer and editor and very occasional photographer. And I live in New London, Connecticut. And you blog about Connecticut as well. We're gonna, we'll talk about that a little bit later. I do. And how did you kind of discover Connecticut Explored? How did you pitch your story to us? Oh, gosh. Well, I've been reading um, Connecticut Explored for a while, and I can't even remember um, the first one that I read. But I knew that you were there, and I knew that you were kind of the place to go for these uh, sort of deep historical stories that probably no one else would be interested in. And we could tell when you pitched this story that this was one that you felt deeply personal about. So how did you beca- first become aware of the story and what tug- tugged at you about it? Last year when Connecticut abolished the death penalty, uh, several stories came out in the media about the history of the death penalty in the state and how it had been disproportionately applied to minorities. And Gershom Marks popped up in those stories for two reasons. Um, One as a bit of trivia, because he was the oldest person to have been executed in the state. And two, because he was a perfect example of this. He was someone who really lived on the fringes of society, like so many others who were executed. Racial and ethnic minorities, immigrants, women who were not behaving the way that women were expected to behave, and so on. And then when I started reading about him, I 
I found that um, I assumed he was definitely guilty. Most other people do. When he comes up in histories of Connecticut or histories of the death penalty, it's almost presented as this sort of entertaining, almost gory crime story of the past. But when I got into newspaper coverage of the trial and the investigation, I realized it really was not an open and shut case. Walk us through this story because it is fascinating. Gershom Marx was a, a farmer in Colchester. He was a Jewish immigrant from what's now Poland. In 1904, he was accused of the murder of one of his farmhands, a Polish man named Pavel Rodecki. And he was tried and convicted. And in 1905, he was executed. And he was 73 years old at the time. There were a lot of uh, challenges for you in researching the case, but also challenges of the prosecutors, obviously, in the case. And so just talk about some of those issues. There were issues of, of race and ethnicity and, you know, outsider status that really complicated this. How? Well, I found that um, there were really a lot of ways it was almost a perfect storm of influences that kind of um, conspired to make this a really hard case to try. I think even if everyone had had the best of intentions, it would have been very hard for Marx to get a fair trial. And I should say that I'm not saying that he's guilty or innocent. I don't know. I just think that it would have been very difficult to determine it. So first you had um, the fact that all the players in the case, the victim, the accused, most if not all of the witnesses were uh, immigrants from, they were either Jews or Poles from Poland and that area. Many of them did not speak English. They were coming with a whole different um, baggage of different history, different culture, different religion, different customs, and most of it's coming through a court interpreter. Uh, so that combined with the fact that perceptions of foreigners and minorities at the time uh, was obviously still today, <laughs> plenty of racism and bigotry to go around, but at the time it was much uh, cruder. I chose to go at this story through newspaper coverage, and you can tell just even in the way that people are described. So like physical features are used to kind of show uh, character, like some feature on Marx's face, uh, reporters would say, shows that he's clearly avaricious or evil or something. And on top of all that, you have the fact that in this particular case, a lot of uh, specifics that really impacted uh, the events around the murder had to do with uh, Jewish culture and even some more arcane points of Jewish religion that the jury and the press and the judge and so on would have been asked to understand. Um, and others were far more complicated, like blood found in the house, and, and Marx was accused of killing Rodecki in the house. So in the trial, a rabbi, local rabbi, testified that he had slaughtered a cow on the farm around that time, and parts of the cow had been brought into the kitchen of the house, and that would account for how the blood got there. So this has to do with the process of determining whether the animal is kosher by checking for impurities in the lungs of the animal by running them underwater, and this is the kind of thing that's kind of left to authorized officials even you know, among Jews, like not everybody knows this. So certainly if you're asking this, this jury of white men, Connecticut Yankees to understand, to accept this explanation of how blood got in a house where murder took place, it would be understandable even for them to think this was a pretty sketchy 
explanation. And of course, this is before DNA technology, so there wasn't the technology to be able to determine whether the blood was a from a cow or from a person, right, exactly. never mind which person it was, was from. Exactly. In addition to the specific facts, several major components of this case line up pretty perfectly with centuries-old anti-Semitic myths, one being the blood libel. So the, the historic um, false accusation that a Jew has killed a Christian in order to use their blood for religious purposes around Passover. So this crime took place in the spring, um, March of 1904, at the time of Passover. That also, that year, happened to coincide with Easter, which is also historically a time of persecution when Jews in Europe had been killed. And the blood libel actually, you know, still goes on. <laughs> you, you can still find in European newspapers instances of this updated for the modern day, but it's still there. And so then you had, on top of that, the motive, which was money. The prosecution claimed that Marx had paid Radecki his wages at the end of his term of work and then killed him in order to get the money back. And that was a tidbit that a lot of newspapers, like the New York Times especially, really ran with. And they painted this very familiar image of the greedy Jew who will kill people sooner than part with any cash. And that's actually something that comes up in, in a couple other murders in Connecticut around this time. Except in those cases, the Jews are the victims because somebody robs them thinking that they have a bunch of cash on them and kills them during the robbery. And then, of course, they don't have any money. But um, So this would have been familiar either uh, overtly or just at the back of the minds of pretty much everyone at this day. And that kind of highlights the challenges of analyzing history through newspaper articles. It's one of the sources that we often look at. But People think today that, oh, you know, our media is biased, but bias in media is something to watch out for in every period. And these newspaper articles, they're certainly very entertaining to read. It's almost comical, but if you think of it in terms of modern journalistic standards, which of course are not always upheld, but the things that would make it into print are just crazy, like wild, unsubstantiated rumors and unconfirmed you know, all kinds of things. During the investigation, all of the articles uh, were talking about how Marx was now being accused of, of many other murders. They kind of tried to pin every disappearance in Colchester in the past several years on Marx, and he was never uh, formally accused of any of those crimes. But the quote-unquote evidence for them were things like uh, an itinerant peddler was seen at Marx's house, and then later Marx was seen with some of the goods that this peddler had been selling, and then the peddler was never seen again. So is this evidence of a murder, or is it just describing like how peddling worked? You know, <laughs> The peddler um, just went somewhere else. And at the time, communication being what it was, and you're also dealing with, with a population where many people were itinerant workers. This was how... It was done. Um, Farmhands and mill workers and so on would would sign up for a term of several months. They would get paid at the end of it and they would move on. And many of them being immigrants, they didn't necessarily have a lot of close ties in the area. So somebody could disappear. There are many things that didn't get into the article because I had sort of a, a narrow scope of it or else it would have just gotten out of control. But, but one thing that you find 
when you read these early 20th century court coverage, uh, there are all kinds of little irregularities that today would be just unacceptable. One of them was the court interpreter who was Polish, so he was employed uh, by New London County Courts to translate uh, Polish-speaking witnesses' testimony. He was also uh, involved in the CSI of the case. He was out there on the farm digging up, looking for bodies, and oh. dealing with the coroner. And and that's just one example. There seemed to be some attempt to get, at least as the state con conceive it, an unbiased jury. Yes, they did. Um, several potential jurors were dismissed for perceived or outright stated, I guess, anti-Semitic tendencies. So they did. They did know that that the possibility existed that prejudice could interfere with the trial, and they did attempt, at least nominally, to um, prevent that. Many more potential jurors, a lot of them, were dismissed because they had read too much newspaper coverage of the case. So what happened to the concept of beyond a reasonable doubt? There just seemed to have been plenty of reasonable doubt here that he ended up being convicted anyway. Yeah, well, his lawyers actually did appeal to the state Supreme Court on the grounds that the state had not provided sufficient evidence to convict marks of first-degree murder, which the, uh, they were supposed to provide uh, two witnesses or the equivalent. And that appeal was unsuccessful, but, but his lawyers didn't seem to believe that he was innocent, or at the very least that there wasn't enough evidence to convict him. And Marx himself always said that he was innocent down to that, that was his, uh, his very last statement. Last words. Yeah. Did you, throughout all your reading and research, develop a theory about who you think did do it? I know you said you didn't sort of make a decision on whether you thought Marx was innocent or not, but do you think there was another I I don't know possible? Who, who did it, but um, I think there are definitely other possibilities. I mean, just one of them would be the man who found the body, mm. who was another farmhand of Marx's who dug up the body, which had been buried on the farm, uh, and then he accused Marx, and he had also accused him of other things, like um, trying to poison him with poisoned whiskey mm -hmm. previously, and they had a sort of tumultuous relationship. They would drink together, and they would fight, and, and things like that, and he, too, disappeared sort of after this case. He, he was the main witness, and then after that, someone tried to track him down, and he was gone. So who knows? Did he get another job? Did he leave Colchester? Because this whole thing was just traumatic, which, you know, could have happened. Did he, was he guilty? And who knows, you know? Thank you for bringing us that story. It, it was fascinating. So tell us about your blog, The Size of Connecticut. Blog started it in 2009 when everybody started a blog, I guess. Uh, it's about travel destinations in the state that are off the beaten path, unusual, um, quirky, and occasionally some more popular destinations, but from a slightly different point of view. Um, and I, prob I probably get people who just Google the size of Connecticut to actually find out how big it is. <laughs> how did you pick that name for it? I had just moved back to Connecticut after living away for quite some time. I think like a lot of kids who grew up here, I got out as soon as I could when I was 17 and I um, lived in a couple other states and traveled around a little. And, and during that time of living out of state, I discovered that 
the only time Connecticut was mentioned in like national media or other sources um, was as a reference point size-wise to something else. So I think Kosovo is about the size of Connecticut and some game park in some country in Africa that's about the size of Connecticut. So the the only thing that a lot of people who live elsewhere know about Connecticut is that it is small enough that they should be surprised when there's a country the same size, but it's big enough that they should be surprised when it's the same size as like a forest fire in California. So um, when I remembered that, and when I came back and started discovering all these interesting things around Connecticut, I, I realized that like within a space the size of Connecticut, there actually can be a lot uh, to do. Absolutely. Well, we, we certainly believe that as well. Well, thank you very much for contributing to Connecticut Explored, and we hope you'll uh, contribute to us again in the future. Thank you very much. Next up, Elizabeth and I visited Kathy Fields, Executive Director of the Litchfield Historical Society, to talk about the influence of the Litchfield Law School. In 1784 and 1833, more than a thousand young men traveled to a town in the Connecticut Hills to study to become lawyers. They were taught in a new way, not as apprentices, but in classes by Judges Tappy Reeve and James Gould. Until the founding of law schools at Yale, Harvard, and other universities, the premier institution for the education of lawyers in America was the Litchfield Law School. the Tapping Reeve Law School, and Kathy's going to tell us, because already we're getting pretty excited about the fact that this is not quite the tour that you would expect. The people that went to the law school are the, the real story that we want to tell. We want to tell who they were, where they came from, why they came, what they got here, and then what they took with them when they left here. So every visitor who comes becomes either a law student or a student at the Litchfield Female Academy, which was a girls' school here in Litchfield at the same time. And we have little cards called traveling papers, and your traveling papers will tell you about who you are and where you came from and perhaps why you came to Litchfield. And then they help guide you through the the exhibit. So you pick up a travel ticket, which will tell you about what your travel was like here to Litchfield. You can pick up a political ticket. If you're a man, we probably know what your political party was, so you can see what your beliefs were. If you're a woman, we really don't know what your political party was. So What, what were the two choices? Yeah, I'm, I'm William Holt Averill, and I'm a Whig, according to the paper I was given. And I'm Caroline Tracy, but we, we don't know. No, because women didn't participate yes. in the political process. Or at least so. uh, more behind the scenes. This is the true. tender influence yes. from inside the, the home. So if, if William Holt Averill were not a Whig, which uh, evolved from the Federalist beliefs, what would he be? What's the other side? Um, this is somewhat simplified, but he would be an anti-Federalist. What, what year are we talking here? We're interpreting? early 19th century. Reeve took his first student in 1774 and built the actual law school building in 1784. So Reeve started probably teaching his first student as an apprentice, which was the typical way of teaching law. By 1784, he developed a full curriculum of lectures. But Reeve first trained as a teacher before he became a lawyer. So we think he was a born teacher, and it just became natural for him to teach the law. So he's starting right after the Revolution, American Revolution, in that those first years of the new nation. Yes. His 
Right. He had a partner whose name is James Gould who carried on the school for a bit after he after Reeve died. So the school closed in the 18, early 1830s, about 1833. And do, do we know why it closed? By that time, universities had established law schools, and it became more logical for a law school to be attached to a university than to be a private proprietary school. Um, Reeve, over the course of the law school, taught over a 1,000 students. There were other proprietary schools during the time, but none of them came even close to that number. The law school itself, the building, is a fairly modest-sized building. You have another building here. We are actually in the Tapping Reef House. So it's the house that Reeve built for his wife, Sally Burr, and they moved here in 1774. And um, originally, his original students were actually taught in this house. The Historical Society acquired the house in 1928-29, so we used the house to install an interpretive exhibit about the law school. The students came here from all over. Right. They came from um, 13 states and territories, Canada and the West Indies, and they went out to every state and territory um, by, the ti- by the time the school yeah. closed, as far as California mm-hmm. and Texas. Uh, we just received a copy of a dissertation written by a young man who used students at the law school as the basis for the dissertation, and he did this great map that shows arrows coming out of Litchfield and where, where, they, oh. where they went, which is, like, so cool. Yeah. And so you can really see the, the, the broad reach of the students. In the early period, so really, again, when the country is just in its most formative stages, were there other law schools? No, there weren't. There were, as I said, um, some other proprietary schools later on. But the traditional way of learning the law was to apprentice with a lawyer. It was called reading the law. Okay. And it was a tradition that came over from, from Great Britain. In the past, in past years, had tours with John Langbein, who is the emeritus legal historian at Yale. And he's brought his legal history class in. And he stands them in the law school and says, this was the largest law school in the Anglo-American world. Oh, wow. And it's kind of shocking when you see it. <laughs> well, so that puts me in mind of our other Connecticut Noah Webster, who was interested in formalizing and standardizing the American language of Tapping Reeve in a way, was formalizing the practice of law. Right, and you also, your education is good as the lawyer you're studying right. with. Yeah. So it, it was very uneven. But the way Reeve taught, everybody came out with the same basic, basic knowledge. How yeah. they used it was yeah. up to them, right. Right. but everybody had the same knowledge. And one of the, the hallmarks of the school are the notebooks that the students wrote. So they wrote their lectures down, sometimes verbatim, sometimes not, but in longhand, and had those volumes bound, and they became the basis of their law libraries. And we're just really starting to be able to delve into the notebooks because of a project that Yale University Law School is doing. So we have maybe 60, 65 copies of notebooks in our collection. Yale has more. And they just did a project to digitize all of them. So they're all online now. So scholars and teachers and anybody who's really interested in what was happening in the early teaching of law can actually read the notebooks now. If you can imagine it, Litchfield was the fourth largest town in Connecticut in 1800. There were many, many people coming through. There was a big merchant activities here in town. There were taverns and and um, wayhouses and things like that. It was a supply depot during the Revolution, so many people came came through that way. And it was the county town, so the court was here. And that's really what was important to, to, to um, Tapping Reef. And w- one of the things that we really try and do in the exhibit is, is help people connect what the students were going through to, to real life today. They were young. They were in their early late teens or early 20s. They were kids. They were trying to figure out what life was about, so they were meeting girls, and they were trying to get settled. 
and they were doing a lot of the same things that we do today. So one of the quotes that we use in the text in the exhibit, a young man writes home to his father, and the letter starts, my dear father, it is about cash. So <laughs> if you were ever a student or the parent of a student, you know exactly what that letter is about, and, and you, you, and you can connect money. to it. <laughs> the house was much changed after Reeve lived here, but the space that we're in now is the space that would have been Tapping Reeve's office. Okay. So it's a very small room, and he he did practice law, and he became a judge, so there were occasions when he had to meet clients or to work with people in, in his rather small office. Aaron Burr was Reeve's first law student and his brother-in-law, so he was one of the first people in Litchfield who came came here to study the law. And famously... Killed Alexander Hamilton in a duel and has a musical. Oh, that is the big ticket to get these yes. days. One of the things that we thought was important was to be to be able to tell how the the part, the students were in different political parties, but how the political parties developed into what is now Democrat and Republican. One of the things that is really striking, though, is how intensely political these young men were and how important they really felt the political process was. And what I like to tell small school children is that their fathers wrote the Constitution and won the war, and these guys, these gentlemen, took it as their responsibility to make the Constitution work. Now, was practicing law a, a very lucrative thing it to was, do in those days? It was somewhat lucrative. It was a good, solid profession, and they were nice middle, middle-class folk. Um, it wasn't going to make you rich, probably, at that point. A lot of them went into business, you know, using their legal knowledge to to go into business, and those were probably the ones who made made more money. Um, but it was it was good. We think Reeve actually studied the law because he wanted to marry Sally Burr, and he went. He had originally studied to be a teacher. Then he went to study the law, and subsequently they were able to marry. And I think I think it's because law was a profession that was more acceptable to the to the Burrs. This final gallery in the house we call balancing your life and it really talks about what the students did after they left Litchfield. So the first part of the room is dedicated to students who are best known for things other than the law. And there are a number of those, including Horace Mann, the educator, George Catlin, a painter of Native American scenes, John Lloyd Stevens, who was the first non-Native person to explore the Yucatan in Central America. Some really interesting, interesting people who may have practiced law at some point in their career, but weren't best known as lawyers. The number of students who entered public office is extraordinary, either at a local, state, or, or federal level. And sort of the big numbers are we had two vice presidents, three Supreme Court justices, 14 governors, 14 members of the federal cabinet, and 10% of the United States Congress in 1810. So wow. it's a lot of people who are doing a lot of great work. And then the the ones who went into business, contracting business. So the founder of Etna Insurance, a good, a good Hartford connection, um, ra- railroad founders, the person who ran the first successful steamship company to cross the Atlantic. So lots of different kinds of business. And really with westward expansion, the, the business world was wide open to these guys. So they um, really played a big role in what was happening as, as the country moved west. Now, the number of, of, of graduates who moved into public life, taking public office, was that uh, very directly related to Tapping Reeve's influence? Did he push them, guide them, inspire them along those lines? I, I think he must have had some influence on it. 
I think it was really something. There was a, a feeling in the country that you had to give that there was a, a national duty, and you had to. The, it was right to do service to this to the to your town or your state or your country, and we just received this week a copy of a dissertation where he really concentrates on five or six Litchfield students, but he concentrates on how important their actual legal careers were mm-hmm. and what they did in terms of building the economy and supporting Western expansion through their legal work. So now you're standing in the actual law school. Which is much smaller than people probably envision. It's a, Someone once described it as the size of a one and a half car garage or or something like that, which I don't think gives it the dignity that it's due. Um, It's hard to imagine, but there are probably at one time up to 50 students in here at a time. Reeve lectured in here and his partner James Gould lectured. The students took the notes down and, as I said, those became the basis of their law libraries. This is from Roger Sherman's notebook, and it's a page where he lists all of his fellow students and some of what he considers their characteristics. So some of them are listed as drunks, some of them are listed as easy, um, some of them are listed as loose. We're not sure what those words meant. It's sort of an early 18th century slam book. So um, they, they weren't always attending to their studies. But it is just a, kind of a one-room schoolhouse, yeah. really. Yep. Um, it How was, was it heated? I was going to say, was there a It was not heated. So they were huddled in here very close together in very heavy coats, I imagine, during the, during the winter. Did, did they study year-round? They did study year-round. The course, actually, of study went for 18 months, and you could, you could pop in at any point during that period and then just stay until you got back to the beginning. But we've recommended that you start in, in the fall, usually mm-hmm. in September or October. So how much did it cost to go to this law school? We have records of fees from about 100 to $150, depending, depending on the time period, and that was just your tuition. The students roomed and boarded in town, so they would live with families in town, and they um, had to buy their own supplies, their own paper, and, and they had to furnish their... We have a wonderful letter where a student talks about this quite extensively. They had to furnish their own room and their servant if they needed one. And then travel was very expensive. Students came from uh, all over. How did they learn about the school then? Lots of it were, were social, again, social connections, letters between between families or friends. So word of mouth. Word of mouth. Main, main family, marketing. Family connections. Yeah. We have looked. The greatest number of students came from Connecticut. The second greatest number came from Massachusetts. And the third from Georgia. So there were definitely definite connections in Georgia, and we've looked at newspapers down there to see if there were advertisements during the period when Georgia students were coming, and we can't find any. Yeah. But we do have letters of introduction and, and, and sort of family connections. Students came from all over the country and went all over the country, and their influence really was, was significant up until the Civil War. And if you look at what was happening in Congress before the Civil War, law students had their hand in everything. So we have the student who wrote the Articles of Secession for the state of Georgia. We have a couple of Southern generals. We have um, John C. Calhoun, who was definitely a, a Southern, Southern secessionist. So, and then we have lots of folks um, from the North who were on the northern, northern side of the war. So the connections and the things that the law students were doing 
I think really can give you a picture of everything that was happening in the country if, if you look at each individual students and what, their, and what their influence was. I hope you will come visit. We are open through the end of November, and then we open again in, it's in the middle of April. It's a, it's a fun experience. It's a little different, I think, than a lot of the museums around, and it's, um, it's very interactive and very engaging, we hope, and we'd love to have you come. And then the show that you have up at the uh, museum, uh, the main museum. Sure, we have um, some permanent galleries that are um, about Litchfield history, but the the temporary show that we have right now is on sports and recreation in Litchfield. So it really starts with things that were happening: the law students playing cricket on the green, through high school high school sports and recreational sports. And it was a, an exhibit that we really tried to engage with a, with our community. And so we most of the objects in the exhibit are borrowed from people in the community, and it really talks about contemporary times as well as historic times. You've published a book about the, uh, the road race. Right. We just published a history of the Litchfield Road Race. It's the 20, This year was the 25th anniversary of the race. It's an amazing race that draws thousands of runners every year the second weekend in June. And a local local historian did a terrific re- research and published a book on the, on the history of the road race. So if you're a runner, there will be names in there that you recognize. And what is admission to the museum and law school? Admission right now is free. Um, this is our first year of free admission. We wanted to really, again, connect with the community and become more of as much of a community resource as we could. So we've waived admission. We have some underwriting that's helped us do that, and it's been a great experience. We've had lots of people come through, and we've had people get involved and engage with us in other ways. So it's worked out really well for us. Thank you very much. We've enjoyed our tour of Litchfield Law School. Well, thanks so much for listening. If you want to learn more about any of these stories, including the mysterious case of Gershom Mark, and the influence of the Litchfield Law School, or stories in the issue about the Wethersfield State Prison, the history of the Connecticut State Police, witchcraft trials in Fairfield, and New Haven Sheriff Jack Slavin's efforts in the 1930s to deter youth from a life of crime, or other editions of the magazine, visit ctexplored.org. You can subscribe or purchase back issues or the current issue there. Thanks for listening. We wish to thank Jonna Kaplan, Kathy Fields, and the Litchfield Historical Society. In the next episode of Grading the Nutmeg, we visit with Ruth Duncan and hear more about her discovery of what may be a pirate's pericardium among the papers in her grandfather's desk. Read about her startling discovery in the fall 2016 issue of Connecticut Explored, and then join us. To purchase the issue, visit ctexplored.org.